It's here in the city. It's here in the city. This is here in the city. This is here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. I'm Sarah Harris. New message. Truth should be truth. But then it depends on, in the telling, whose truth is it. We're here most Tuesdays, bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape and mapping the city with voices of creative social change in and around Los Angeles. On Pacifica Radio, powered by the people, thanks to the generous support of you, our listeners, the capable crew at KPFK, the innovators of web-based radio at SoundCloud, news you might have missed at newsdesk.org, and the community-funded reporting project, Spot Us. You can find us on the web at here in the city. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. In 1986, the Center for Creative Photography in Tucson, Arizona, acquired an extensive archive of photos taken by Mexican photographer Lola Alvarez Bravo. She captured her photos over the greater part of the 20th century, and her body of work is striking in its access and range. Carlos Monsiváis, Carlos Fuentes, Siqueiros, Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera are just a few of the internationally acclaimed Mexican artists and intellectuals who sat for Lola in portraits. She gave equal attention to circus performers, mothers carrying daughters on their backs in rebosos, and children sleeping in the streets. She documented life in Mexico at a time when the country was undergoing tremendous change. Lola has never received as much attention or accolades as her former husband and collaborator, the famed Manuel Alvarez Bravo. Yet, her photos are ubiquitous in contemporary Mexican iconography. One day in 1985, after the tragic and jolting earthquake in Mexico City, a good friend of Lola Alvarez Bravo suggested that she would be better off moving out of her damaged apartment, steps away from the monument to the revolution. She was 82 years old by then, and she agreed. And here's where this story intersects with a circumstance that you and I, or your parents or your grandparents, are probably familiar with. They very hurriedly packed up Lola's life and belongings and planned to move her to a place where she could be assisted. In that move, something important was left behind. It was a set of boxes. And in those boxes were a lifetime of photographic prints, contact sheets, letters, and works given to her by former students, her ex-husband, and other photographers. That box sat forgotten in Lola's apartment until neighbors bought the apartment and found it. Flash forward five years to Long Beach, California, where this past Saturday, two curators at the Museum of Latin American Art. My name is Adriana Savala. I'm Rachel Arouse. Unveiled an exhibit of Lola Alvarez Bravo's Lost Archive. Our arts editor, Jesse Lerner, took a tour of the gallery as Adriana and Rachel were finishing the last-minute preparations for the show. 
You know, when Lola gave her archive to the Center of Creative Photography in the 90s, she selected her 100 best works. Many of her negatives went to the CCP. There's absolute legitimacy and value to that endeavor, but it is a self-selection, so there is an editing process. What's so exciting about finding boxes literally under the bed is that we don't know why she kept certain things. We found all kinds of interesting little scraps of paper with notations. She kept some photographs by Manuel, some of which I think have rarely, if ever, been published. Manuel was very, very conscious of authoring his own career. So these are photographs that aren't part of the sort of official recognized corpus of his work, yet Lola had them. She kept photographs by her students. So on the one hand, there's some kind of intentionality that we don't yet understand, but what's so wonderful is that there's a real kind of clash of elements that forces us to um, really rethink some of the assumptions we've long held about her career. Well, Nacho Lopez used to go through the role of 120 film and mm -hmm. cut out the, the frame right. that he wanted mm -hmm. preserved for posterity and mm -hmm. burn the others mm -hmm. so that people would never see his working process. Mm -hmm. He'd just get the image. Yeah, absolutely. And photographers, like any other artist, do that. They are the authors of their work. Now, with some of these photo montages, it seems like the dialogue with German data is very clear, but you also mentioned surrealism mm -hmm. and some of, both in terms of the montages, um, but also some of the quote-unquote straight photography definitely sh suggests a, a dialogue with surrealism. Breton, of course, was in Mexico, organized an exhibition of Mexican art both in Paris mm -hmm. and another exhibition at the Galleria Arte Mexicano. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about those exchanges? Andre Breton famously came to Mexico in 1938 and declared Mexico the surrealist country par excellence, and he anointed a couple of artists as unconscious surrealists. One of them was Manuel Alvarez Bravo, and the other one was, of course, Frida Kahlo. And he, he was trying to convey the idea that Mexico, that Mexican intellectuals were unawares of the ideas at the heart of surrealism, which is an absolute fallacy. We know that artists like um, uh, Agustin Lasso were very conversant with surrealism in, in 1925. Um, but as a result, Manuel, also because of um, his ability to capture that uncanny moment, the unexpected, in the environment of Mexico, and then through his use of very poetic and lyrical titles, has always been associated with a surrealistic orientation uh, in the Mexican art world. Lola, much less so. Now that we look at some photographs, for example, there's one that we've titled Descript Descriptively Mannequins, which is a photograph that is really a sort of encounter with uh, a very um, humble uh, establishment, some kind of shop that has a bunch of mannequins' arms and legs and a torso upside down in sort of a kilter in front of this establishment. Um, that is a photograph that is very much in dialogue with the kind of uncanny um, encounter that Manuel is so well known for. And she and Manuel Alvarez Bravo were married um, in the early 20s when they were both quite young. And their interest in, in photography, I would say, more or less developed in parallel. He was probably a couple of steps ahead of her. He had apparently met the German emigre photographer Hugo Bremen in Mexico City. Um, but nevertheless, uh, in, in interviews with friends and colleagues in the 80s, Lola described uh, that when they lived as a young married couple in Oaxaca, that they would share a camera and um, that they were learning together that he was teaching her the darkroom process. So there's, you know, according to Lola's own accounts, she was already beginning to be interested in participating in the photographic practice in the 20s. 
Um, and we do know that they saw one of Edward Weston and Dina Modotti's exhibitions in Mexico City in 1924. And of course, Weston and Modotti were so influential on the development of Mexican photography and on the development particularly of Manuel's aesthetic, although of course he took it in his own very personal and, and tremendous direction. But whereas Manuel over the course of his life um, has achieved recognition for really cultivating a career for himself as a fine art photographer, absolutely um, a chronicler of, of life in Mexico. Lola, I would describe as more of a workaday photographer. Um, Lola, by the mid-30s, was a single woman again, uh, raising their son, um, didn't have a family to support her financially, and was certainly very ambitious and had a real sense of her own self-worth and her own potential. Um, but she was compelled to take a whole variety of different paying jobs as a photographer. And so the variety of artistic vocabularies that we find in Lola's corpus of work is, I would say, more varied than what we find in Manuel's. Um, and that's with all due respect to Manuel, he is a master, the master of Mexican photography. But Lola's work is very complex and, and, and quite varied. And because this exhibition is based on the discovery of a previously unknown archive of Lola's personal and professional effects, um, we have really seized on what we found in the archive to create it to, to, for, as an opportunity um, to look at Lola's work thematically in relation to themes that she's now already long established and recognized for um, uh, engaging with, for example, uh, very trenchant images of life in Mexico over the course of the 20th century. She was very well known and very highly respected as a portraitist, and there are examples of, of her portraits of Diego Rivera, of Frida Kahlo, of Rufino Tamayo, of Salvador Toscano in the show, and these are, again, this is a show curated expressly out of a newly discovered archive. Um, so I guess I should tell you a little bit about how the archive came to be. Yeah, that's it's the Gonzalez Rondon. Yes. They're neighbors, essentially. Right? So I indeed, the Gonzalez Rondones are uh, relatives of a woman named Clementina Rivera, who was also from the state of Jalisco, like Lola, and met Lola in uh, probably in around 1927 in Mexico City, and they became very good friends. Also, a very powerful personality, and um, Clementina and Lola lived in the same building. After the Mexico City earthquake of 1985, as Lola's health was also beginning to fail, um, she was encouraged by her friends, among them uh, the late art historian Olivier de Brois, to eventually move out of that apartment um, because her health was failing and it was where the epicenter of the earthquake had been. So when Lo to make a long and complicated story short, when Lola moved out of that apartment, she apparently left some things behind. Clementina subsequently bought the apartment and safeguarded those belongings because by that time Lola was in ill health and very shortly thereafter died. So in 2007, Clementina's descendants, who now had possession of these materials, came forward to the Diego Rivera Studio Museum in Mexico City because Mexico was celebrating the centennial of Frida Kahlo's birth. And there were photographs in their possession that are of Frida Kahlo because Lola was friends with Frida and took a series of portraits of her. So they thought that perhaps there might be some interest in these materials. And then it, it came to be understood that this was actually an archive that had once belonged to Lola Alvarez Bravo. Uh, so one of my commitments intellectually as a Mexican who is based in U.S. academia is to always contextualize Mexican and Latin American art in an international context to really disabuse, of, uh, disabuse us of this notion that Mexicans or any intellectuals ever work in a vacuum. What they'll see here is about 50 works by Lola, seven or so works by Manuel that were found in the archive, and then 16 works by Lola's students. Rachel and I really wanted to bring forth that you learn some really new and interesting things when you think about a, a collection of materials as a collection. 
So of course we've selected beautiful exhibitable works by Lola, but we've included works by students, among them the very well-known Mariana Yampolsky, who as a very young woman was um, emigrated to Mexico and was mentored by Lola. Photographs by Raul Conde, some photographs by a student who's identified only by their initials of AS. Someone might say, well, why are you including works like that by relatively unknown people, some whose identity we don't even understand? Again, the archive compels us to do that. Um, Rachel, would you like to add something? Um, yeah, I, as, a, as a photo historian, it was fascinating to get involved with this project of Lola's practice. Um, as Adriana was saying, that she was both a workaday photographer, but she's also part of this very um, rich intellectual community of artists and writers. She's um, conversing with very sophisticated ideas and um, at the cutting edge of new thinking about modern art, themes of surrealism, themes of the new objectivity, I mean really international vocabulary of artistic movements. Now one of the things that um, one of the things we like to do as curators and scholars is we like things to be neat and tidy, we want to pigeonhole things, we want to put a nice label on someone as a this or as a that. And, and as Adriana was saying, Manuel very strategically cultivated his identity and found a beautiful, beautiful, compelling, formal vision of his photography and his use of poetic titles and stuck with that throughout his career. Well, Lola's working in all these different um, dialogues, all these different vocabularies. She's working for different people. She's making photographs for her own um, aesthetic vision. And that kind of variety is hard to pin down. So it's easy to let someone like Lola, who seems to be all over the place, sort of slip by and dismiss her. But it's actually that complexity that really tells us something new and significant about, about her work. This archive that was found is, is quite vast. Um, it was tons and tons of work um, of varying quality in boxes. And what you're seeing here in the exhibition is really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, now, you, you both mentioned the photo montages, and it seems like some of them have a more propagandistic mm -hmm. bent, right? Mm -hmm. The abriendo caminos, you want to walk over there? Sure. Um, yeah, well, that's what's so interesting is that, you know, Lola is best known for the photo montages that she did in the 1930s. And these were done, it appears, uh, very expressly for a publication called El Maestro Rural, or the Rural School Teacher, which was a publication with a kind of socialist orientation and very much an international leftist aesthetic that was published by the Ministry of Public Education in Mexico from 1932. And so her most famous photomontage is a work that you'll see, the actual pieced together object, which is quite large, um, of El Sueño de los Pobres, The Dream of the Poor. And it shows a little boy um, that Lola captured in a photograph on the street, sleeping on a very sort of rough concrete bench. But she created a photo montage by situating the little boy amidst a pile of coins with two sort of um, gear wheels that appear to be about to consume him. And so it's very much an indictment of the exploitation of the labor of the poor and a capitalist economic system. And that montage was both published in El Maestro Rural in 1935, and then it was one of two works that she included in an exhibition of revolutionary posters by women artists that was curated by Maria Izquierdo. So it was absolutely thrilling, um, given the iconic status of that montage, to actually find the object. Um, then we also found um, a variety of the originals um, of a series of montages that she did that actually appear to celebrate the sort of modern industrialization of Mexico in the 1940s, which is a very different political and historical moment in Mexico. 
Very interestingly, Lola continued to work with a variety of different government agencies, and so she created a series of photo montages that celebrate, um, for example, new computing industries. So there's one called Computadora. There's another one called Abriendo Caminos, opening new roadways that shows a man with a jackhammer in front of an airport with all kinds of new industrial technology. Um, so what's so interesting is that certainly in the 30s, Lola is very conversant in a kind of socialist aesthetic of very dramatic compositions. There's no question that intellectuals in Mexico are aware of Soviet social realism, and they're in dialogue with this in the context of Cardenismo. But Lola was somebody, again, who was participating in a variety of different uh, vocabularies, and so in the 40s she was making images that are much more kind of capitalist propaganda. Another wonderful discovery in the archive, which was so exciting to me, is that there's two photographs of Lola's that are really iconic. They're emblematic Lola works. One is, was traditionally titled El Número 17, number 17, and it shows a very um, sort of distressed facade of a building with the number 17 as the house number, and then a very mysterious window with two shadowy figures. Well, we found two copies of that print in the archive, and one of them, on the reverse, had a label that revealed to us that it was one of um, two photographs that Lola exhibited in Philadelphia in 1943 in the exhibition Mexican Art Today. We knew that she was included in that exhibition, um, but the titles didn't match any of her known works. So now we know that El Número 17 was shown as Las Horas Perdidas, which shifts our attention away from the architecture, away from the number 17, and to the two mysterious figures in the window. Another iconic photograph is called Por Culpas Ajenas, also dated, we thought, to the 1950s. Again, we found a second print with the same label on the back. We now know that it was shown in Philadelphia under the title Pena de Muerte, Death Penalty, or Pain of Death. And that also shifts the way that we interpret the image. So the shifting of the titles also demonstrates how adept Lola was at using language. I mean, we can think about Roland Barthes and his ideas about the way the titles anchor meaning. So these artists were very conversant with these ideas, and we still see Lola participating in that. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. You are listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. 93.7 FM in San Diego and 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. An archive and a podcast of our shows is at here in the city, that's H E A R in the city.org. And at kpfk.org, you can like us on Facebook if you like. And visit us at our website, here in the city.org. And follow us on Twitter. underground techno house parties of the 1990s in Los Angeles might seem a thing of the past in today's high-profile and expensive atmosphere of raves like the Hard Fest and the chemically saturated Electric Daisy Festival. Our music contributor, Alvaro Parra, has a postcard for us from today's underground LA scene where party hosts are well-educated, community-oriented promoters who can still be low-profile while drawing enough cash to come back next month without blowing their cover this month. It's all about the music, the DJs, and the dancing. It's Saturday night in the Los Angeles Basin. I'm accompanied by my sound engineer, DJ Lonefeather. We're headed to Love Fix, an underground dance party somewhere in Chinatown. We feel like dancing and talking to people who feel the same way. As you may have heard, electronic dance music is big news these days. 
However, we're going to where it all began. We're going to the roots of this movement. A loud, dark warehouse party. Tonight's DJ lineup features some of the best Latino DJs from LA. David Alvarado, originally from Santa Ana and a pioneer in the 90s warehouse and club scene, headlines. We also have Silent Servant, one-time member of the Sanwell District Collective, taking us on a deep space techno trip. And Javier Denciso, tonight's promoter and closing DJ, whom we'll hear from in just a bit. And we also have DJ Dex opening things tonight. DJ Dex, also known as... Danny Caballero, a.k.a. Nomadico, uh, born and raised in L.A., uh, bounced around to Detroit, New York, and now I'm back in L.A. again. Mr. Dex, what do you feel is special about playing to an underground local warehouse crowd? Uh, I would say it's the crowd, mostly, you know what I mean? Like, some people go to parties and everybody's kind of anonymous, but I've been doing this long enough that I know... A lot of people that go to these parties personally, and you'd be surprised like how varied the uh, the demographic is, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like we all have kind of a common wavelength, and chances are I would probably bet money that I could probably find graphic designers here, architects, uh, mathematicians, uh, scientists. Like it's a very uh, smart crowd for the most part. And but with uh, you know different cultures, there's there's Latinos here, there's Blacks here, there's Asians here, and we all have this kind of common bond that we like this music or love this music. There is a palpable feeling of sweat in the air as we walk inside the warehouse. The music Silent Servant plays is largely without vocals. Dance hypnotism seems to take over the crowd. Lone Feather and I are consumed by a sudden blast from the fog machine. This is a simple effect with a heavy impact. The hazy white atmosphere now resembles my vision of heaven, or at least a party in permanent limbo. We decide it's time to talk to a dancer. Her name? Vanessa Alexandra Vargas. And what party crew do you represent? Droid behavior. <laughs> How many years strong now? Going on 10 next, oh, November. This November. Having our 10 year. November 17th, uh, my birthday too, so everybody come out. And can you tell us what's special about coming out to a warehouse party in LA? Well, the vibe most importantly, or I would say the music most importantly, the techno scene, uh, the vibe second foremost, and just the overall experience. No care, darkness, zone out, tuning in, that's it. Like truth, the I don't know if it's like this all over the world, but in LA, it's quite normal for the crowd to vocalize their enthusiasm for the DJ selections. This interaction between the DJ and the dance floor solidifies the vibe. You may not know the person dancing next to you, but for those brief moments of dance floor connectivity, you're part of the same community. This is what some Latino scholars are calling liquid solidarity. We head outside to the smoking patio, and it's clear a gentleman wants to speak to us. My name is Don Pitts from the city of Angels, Los Angeles. Can you tell us about your involvement in the underground party scene 
in Los Angeles, please? Uh, I started going out when I was 13 years old. Um, and when I was about 21, I started doing a um, club uh, party line called the Dirt Line, where it was a club info line where you found out where the parties were. I did it for three years, and uh, any night of the week, you wanted to know where to go, you'd call my line and you know where to go. And why did you choose to come out to this festive underground event tonight? I think it's about uh, family and belonging and uh, having a place where you feel comfortable in, in this crazy world. And this is a place where people who actually kind of get the world can come for respite, you know, and to relax and enjoy themselves. Uh, Javier is a well-known and respected promoter. and. Uh, you're always guaranteed a good time at his, his parties. My name is Javier Denciso. Uh, um, a lot of people know me as uh, Xavier Denciso as well. Uh, old school heads probably know me as Javier because I used to go by just Javier. Uh, I'm from the city of Los Angeles. And uh, this is uh, Love Fix, my event. Been doing it um, as a group with a few other people, mostly family members that you see here, and a couple of good friends that helped me out. And this is about not really sure what number we're on, but it's our third year doing this. How long have you been putting on events in LA, Javier? Oh wow! Um, now it's been 20 years. So this 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 year will mark my 20th year of producing and DJing um, underground events in Los Angeles. So um, I started fairly young. I was like, you know, what? I was like high school then, 1992, class of 1992. So I was 17, 18. You know, just out of high school, my first event, and then 20 years later, here I am, you know, still doing it. What is the magic of the underground that keeps you coming back all these years later here in this warehouse on Spring Street and beyond Chinatown somewhere? Uh, I would have to say it's, it's a mixture of music and the vibe, you know. A lot of people have been giving me a great response for tonight, and, you know, all I've had to say to them is that it wouldn't be what it is without you guys being here and, and putting uh, your, your effort in, into the vibe, you know? Basically, you know, get your groove on and, and you know, and, and showing some respect for the DJs and letting them know that you love what they're doing, you know? Uh, so I, I would have to say those are some of the main characteristics that probably, like, keep bringing me back is the vibe, the music, and, you know, the fact that it's underground and that, you know, we're, like, in some like remote area in LA and nobody knows we're here except the people that you know got a wind of what we were doing and That's right. yeah. Can you tell us about your academic background, your educational background and your your interests uh, where you're taking your uh, academic goals? Sure, um, well I have a bachelor's in Chicano studies and also a master's in Chicano studies and I wrote my MA thesis on Chicano DJ culture, specifically an underground scene here in LA, uh, through my perspective, an autoethnography, uh, my experiences, and also an oral history of like a few other DJs uh, in town. Um, but primarily it was through the lens of, of my experiences, um, my history of like the last 20 years, and also when I started Love Fix, which was right around the time when I was writing my thesis actually, so it was like 2009. And um, Love Fix Order just happened at the time I was finishing my thesis, and um, I decided to include it in the thesis. So 
you know, it just sort of became a research site and also an opportunity to do an event in underground, you know. So it just kind of fit sort of at the perfect time. All right, have a good night, guys. There is a feeling of blissful catharsis that one feels when they know they've given the dance floor their sweat, their microbursts of energy. You may feel tired, but it's exhaustion at its most gratifying. It's 4.30 a.m. As we walk out of the warehouse, our sound engineer shares her final reflections. I got blisters on my feet. They were worth it. Long live the underground. <laughs> For here in the city, I'm Alvaro Parra. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. I'm Sarah Harris. Signing off. To yapping on. When you go in and out, may you have peace and level and safe. Yes. Be safe. Peace.